morning. I'd like you to be a part of a scenario with me for just a minute, and then I'm going to ask you a question. I would like you to assume that you are sharing with someone the gospel, maybe for the very first time. And as you share the gospel, this person begins to think and asks you this question. So for you, what is the most meaningful thing about salvation that you have ever lived? What's the most important aspect of salvation for you? Maybe for some of you, it's the fact that you have eternal life. It's the fact that God has regenerated you. He's given you his life, as it were. He's transforming you, as it were, into the image of Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's justification. The fact that as un- in union with Christ, we actually are given his and considered to be as righteous as Christ is, and therefore acceptable in God's eyes. Maybe for some of you, it's propitiation and reconciliation. It's the fact that God's wrath has been removed. It's the fact that we used to be uh, an enemy, and now we are his friend. Maybe it's forgiveness, the fact that we no longer have a debt in God's eyes, that all of our sins, past and present and future, are wiped away. Maybe it's the fact of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For instance, the fact that God's Spirit has sealed us, and therefore we are owned by God and secure in his sight. And maybe there are other things that come to your mind. The first thing that you think, wow, that's the most important thing of salvation for me. Today we're going to talk about something that probably doesn't come to your mind at first. Probably is a new thought, or maybe it's a thought that you haven't thought about for a while. And I'm privileged to talk about that with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us your wisdom and your grace as we open up the scripture and begin to think about this aspect of salvation, that you would give us your understanding, and that, Lord, this would be applicable to us in a new and special way, especially in these days, these days of chaos and these days of confusion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Since we are almost exactly in the middle of Galatians, I thought it would be fun to go back and see where we've been and see where we're going. So I get the privilege of kind of doing a basic review and kind of looking ahead to kind of place exactly where we're at in the middle here. So what have we seen in Galatians 1 and 2? In Galatians 1 and 2, we've learned that there is only one gospel. And all other aspects, all other things that are shared as if they were a gospel are really distortions of that truth. And that one gospel is the gospel that was preached by the Apostle Paul, even though he would have been the last person that someone would have thought, ha, he's going to be an apostle. It was also the gospel that was accepted by the apostles in Jerusalem. It's a gospel that doesn't allow law to mix in any way. It doesn't allow rules to be placed within it in any way. Why? Because we died to the law. When we died with Christ, we died to the law. And Christ is now our life. In Galatians chapter 3, what have we seen? We've seen that faith is the way that God brings about spiritual blessings to us. It's not anything tied to the law. The law had nothing to do with that blessed position that we have. So what does the law do? Well, in Paul's mind, the law does several things. The law curses. The law does not give life. The law is temporary. It was given for a short period of time, a short period of time in which during that time it would act as a guardian. It would act as someone that directs us along in our path until the one 
who is our Savior, would come. We also learn in chapter 3 that we have passed from the law so that all of the spiritual blessings that are in Christ are now ours. What's coming ahead? What's coming ahead in chapter 5 and chapter 6? We're going to see again that the law and grace are two definitively separate arenas in which we work. And Paul would very bluntly say that if you add anything from the law into the arena of grace, you're actually placing yourself back into the arena of law and falling under its authority, and grace's authority is no longer part of your life. He's also going to say for us that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is actually taking the place of the law and does the role of the law even better. Because you see, the law actually works in the arena of our flesh. And because our flesh is weak and cannot keep the law, us trying to keep the law only produces works of the flesh. But the Spirit of God produces a fruit that the law doesn't even have to limit in any way. And then later he's going to talk to you about and talk to us about how the Spirit of God helps us in our dealing with sin and helps us to understand our life and how our life is to be helpful and useful to others. Today, we're going to conclude his actual discussion, the doctrinal discussion. We're going to enter into kind of a polemical discussion. Paul's done some polemics already in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And we're going to hit a polemical discussion here at the middle of chapter 4. But he's concluding his whole doctrinal discussion. He started in 2.11. He's going to conclude it in 4.7. His theme, the theme that I want you to understand, the theme I want you to remember is this. God provides full sonship in Christ. God provides full sonship in Christ. So therefore, don't go back to where you were before. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he describes that we were not sons before Christ. What were we? Notice what he says. This is what I mean. Remember, he's talking about this aspect of sonship in back in chapter 3, verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. So, chapter 4, verse 1, this is what I mean. That the heir... As long as he is an infant, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He's going to be the heir and receive everything, but as an infant, he's at the same level as a slave. He is under guardians and managers, those that manage his uh, behavior, manage his life, as it were. Notice it says, until the date set by his father. The purpose of his father actually bringing this son into an adult status before him. In the same way, just as it's true in the secular world with regard to that, we also, when we were children, before we were in Christ, before Christ entered into the equation for us, when we were children or infants, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So this is what we were like Before Christ, we were not considered sons. We were not in that status before God. What were we? He says it right here. We were infants. We were children. We were in the smallest, most, uh, in that status-wise, unimportant status, as it were. The same as a slave. The same status as a slave. And notice, please, we were tied to this elementary principles of the world. 
We were under this guardian and we were bound, we were enslaved to what in this passage is going to be the aspect of religion that we considered so important to ourselves. That aspect that allowed us to serve and us to do and us to do and us to do and us to do more so that we could somehow please this God that we're trying to attempt to have a relationship with. That's what we were like before Christ. We were not sons. We were not in any, any way in God's eyes that status of adulthood, that status of God's blessing and God's love received. We were slaves, we were infants, we were under guardians. But after Christ comes, after Christ comes, that's when sonship for us becomes our new status. I'd like to talk a little bit about what Paul talks about here in verse 5 when he talks about adoption. Help us to understand what adoption is. When we think of adoption, we tend to think of an orphan. We tend to think of a child, usually a smaller child. That's not what we're talking about here. The background of this is actually a debated subject among scholars. Is it Roman? Is it Greek? Is it Old Testament? Is it all three? I'm going to stick primarily in the metaphor and the way Paul uses it here in a spiritual sense. But remembering what adoption is in that life, uh, during that time period, it's a legal ceremony a legal position where a child reaches adulthood and actually actually is placed, according to the purpose of the father, in the choice of the father, into his position as heir. Fully responsible, full privileges as a son. This is not a gender issue as much as it's an inheritance issue, a status issue. Paul is the only one in the New Testament that uses this phrase or uses this term. I'd like you to go back with me and look at two other places where he uses it. If you would, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 and see exactly what he says about adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, says this. Actually, let's go to verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, notice please, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God has predestined that we will actually be full heirs, full sons, legally, spiritually, in God's eyes, through our relationship with Christ. And so there's an aspect of this that is certain. It's a predestined, it's a planned, it's a step that God has given, and we are in that position as adopted children. Go back to Romans chapter 8, please. Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about this twice in this passage, and he helps us to understand a little bit more of what adoption is. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and 15 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Everyone who is a believer, everyone who is a believer is led by the Spirit of God and has the status of sonship. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Notice again, the tie of slavery and sonship. We're no longer slaves. We're no longer in that position of slavery, which leads us to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And for Paul, that means by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We're going to see that also today. And then a little bit further into the passage, chapter 8, verse twenty. Three says this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits which is the Spirit Himself, groan inwardly as we await eagerly 
for adoption as sons. Notice, what are we waiting for? The redemption of our bodies. And he sees later that that redemption is actually the resurrection body. So for us, adoption is a truly special thing. It is a present relationship and reality that has a guaranteed, glorious, and secure future. And for Paul, this is significant. This is a redemption, historical redemption fact for us that has changed because Christ has come. So let's go back to our passage in chapter 4 of Galatians and see what Paul is saying after verse 3. He says this, But when the fullness of time had come, People discuss what that is. Is it the fullness of time in terms of prophecy? Is it the fullness of time in terms of culture? How about just staying within the metaphor itself? When the fullness of time, when the child, the infant, has reached the fullness of age, when the father can, according to his purpose, now declare and adopt this son as his full-time, full heir, when that fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, sent forth his son. It was Christ's coming, God's plan to send forth Jesus into the world, to give Jesus this mission, as it were, to come into this world. Notice it says, born of woman, born under the law. Historical facts, coming into the world as a human being, as a Jewish citizen. But notice what it is. It's not just the coming of Christ, it's the work of Christ. Notice what it says, to redeem those who were under the law. To buy us out, to purchase our freedom from the slavery to the law, from our being bound to the law, so that, so having been redeemed from outside the law, having been purchased from outside the law, that we might receive, notice what he says, adoption as sons. Again, underline the fact, not a gender thing, an issue that we are now full heirs of God, full heirs, co-heirs, as he says in Romans 8, 17. Co-heirs with Christ. Looking forward to all the inheritance that awaits us as sons of God. That inheritance including our redemption, excuse me, our resurrection body, but also all of the blessings of heavenly life that is secured for us because we've been predestined. Predestined for this position. So it's Christ's work that has placed us in that. It's also the Spirit's work within us that indicates that we are adopted sons. Notice what he says. And because you are sons, or maybe the Greek can be rendered, and the fact that you are sons is clear because God has sent the Spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That intimate relationship with a God who loves us, who cares for us, the Spirit of God, as it were, bubbling up from within us, the phrase that we shout to God in times of need, shout to God in times of meditation on the fact that he cares and loves for us. You are my daddy. You are the intimate God who loves me and cares for me. And this is obviously transformative. For us, Notice what it says in verse 7. So, as a result of that, you are no longer a slave. No longer a slave to those elemental principles of the world. No longer a slave under the law. You're no longer a slave, but a son. An adopted son. An adult son. With all of the privileges of being an adult son in the family. 
of what that adult sonship carries as well as the responsibilities of that. The certainty of that, the responsibilities of that, the privileges, privileges of that is something we can spend hours and should spend hours meditating on. The transformation that God has given us in our salvation. And if a son, notice what he says, then an heir through God. That deep, intimate relationship we have with God. The heir, excuse me, the inheritance that God himself will give to us is something that is certain, is glorious, and can be looked forward to, as he says in Romans 8, with groaning, with longing. Because we want to achieve that, we want to see that. So, 4, 1 to 11, the theme is what? God has given us full sonship. Full, understand, underlined. Full sonship in Christ. Our union with Christ makes us that. Puts us in that status. Puts us in that position. Therefore, Paul says in 8 to 11, why would you go back? Don't go back. He begins his polemic here, chapter 4, 8, all the way to 5, 1, where he's going to have these various statements and various questions he's going to be throwing out to the Galatians to help them to think, to help them to stop what they're doing and say, why are you doing these things? Notice 4, 8 to 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, in the previous time, this aspect of time is important to Paul, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature are non-gods. They're not gods. You were bound to those religious principles that you followed, bound to those idols that behind those idols are the demons. That's what you served. That's what you were a slave to. Formerly, when you were before you were sons, that's what your life was like. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, and notice please what a great statement this is, to be known by God. For us to say, I know God is a great privilege, but it's even greater and more of a privilege to say, God knows me. I am known by God. I am his adult son. With all those privileges and responsibilities and the glory that awaits us, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? Weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once again. Paul underlines it over and over and over again. You want to go back to that slavery. You want to keep going back to that slavery. You want to go back to that former religious stuff that you worshipped over and over again. And they are what? They are weak. They cannot save you. They are worthless in comparison to the inheritance you have in Christ. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you even think that? He continues on. You observe days and months and seasons and years. These rules, these aspects of your old religion that you lifted up and thought were so very important to somehow your relationship with this non-God that you worshipped. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're going back to. Paul says this, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So this is an important aspect for Paul It's important change that has taken place historically and he wants to remind them again. He reminded us in 4, 1 to 7, that's what we used to be, but now, and now he's saying it again, that's what you used to be, but now, for us to remember the significant change that Christ has brought into the world and specifically to us who are then bound to Christ by faith. Don't go back, because when you go back, the results are terrible. 
What are those results? He just listed them for us. You are enslaved again to non-gods, to zero gods. You may think they're gods, you may think they're worshipable, but they're not. And behind them, they are what? They are weak. They cannot save. They are poor. In comparison to the inheritance that you have in Christ, they're a big nothing. You are now known by God. If you go back, you're rejecting that, as it were. To add things in is to say, I don't care about being known by God. That has no value to me. Paul is underlining for us. He's asking the question for any of us who might think to ourselves, you know, this evangelical faith, it really doesn't have... I liked what I used to be before I was saved. I liked the religion I used to have because it lined things up so nicely and I knew what I did. And I knew what I did in the end might please God. And Paul says... You don't understand. Open your eyes to see and recognize you are enslaved to these non-gods. You are enslaved to the law. Christ has redeemed you from that. Christ has placed you into the position of adult son and heirs to everything that God wants to give to us through Christ. And you're going to what? Turn your back. And go back to what you were. So what does that mean for us today? So what? How do we think about this today? One of the things about application for me in thinking about a passage like this is it goes back to what I think about a lot, what I meditate on a lot. As much as not so much what I do, but what my, where my thoughts and my hearts are going. So I would ask that you rejoice in. I would ask that you meditate on. I would ask that you weigh and evaluate what it means to be an adult son, to be an heir to think about the glory and the security of the inheritance that is awaiting you, to think about what it is like to be loved by God, to be placed in that position of adult sonship, and to not think of it just as a doctrinal point. Wow, God knows me, and I know him, and he has made me his son, and I have this future that is certain, this future that is glorious. It's a present reality with a future reality that I can't even begin to understand. Only as the Spirit of God opens my eyes. Through Scripture, I can begin to fathom it just a little bit. What an amazing guarantee of salvation that is. You think about 1 John 3.1. That will be the verse that we'll read at the end of our service today. You are sons of God. We can't begin to understand what that's like, but when he comes back, it will be revealed to us, and we wait for that with joy. We await for that with joy. Secondly, I think it's important for us to weigh and understand this concept of salvation history, to recognize that God has done something clear in the death and resurrection and the life of Christ. We think about that as B.C. and A.D., and that's the only thing we think about with regard to history of Jesus' coming, and yet it means so much more to us. What we were before Christ came and what we are after Christ came is profoundly different. And for us to dwell upon that, to think about that, elevates our wonder, our wonder in all of the things that God has done for us. And then thirdly, if you give up on this, if you set it aside, if it's no longer a valuable thing to you, what would you do? Where would you go? What would it be like for you? You would go to a a position again where you have to do rather than rest in the fact of what God has done 
for you. Colossians chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, has, in my opinion, one of the best couple verses on this aspect. And Paul uses the same phraseology, this elementary aspects of the world. I'd like to read this passage because it reminds us again of what the other religion, before we come to know Christ, all of those aspects of religion that we did, what they really were, what they were really meant for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, which you did, why is it that you are still alive in the world? Do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Why would you go back and add those things in? All of those things are just part of this world that is passing away. He says this, These are indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Look at all the things I do. Look at all the rules I keep. Look Look how religious I am. They appear to be wise. And they show an asceticism and a severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's Paul's whole point. That's Paul's whole point about the religion of our flesh. Our flesh cannot keep it because our flesh is weak. And though it may look glorious and look like we're pleasing some deity out there, we're not having any effect at controlling the flesh and its desires. So, what is the most important thing about salvation for you? What's the most important aspect of salvation in your thinking? I'd like to read a quote. J.I. Packer is a pretty famous Anglican theologian. This is what he says. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Higher than even justification, coming from a Reformed scholar. That's a pretty profound statement. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder from this passage. What a glorious thing it is, Lord, for us to be saved, for us to be sons of God, with all the privileges and responsibilities, this great status that we have in Christ. I pray, Father, that this full sonship of Christ would be something we could meditate on today tomorrow, this week, and just glory in the fact that you have chosen and called us to this position. Father, may we not be tempted. May we turn aside from all those attempts that the world might give, that Satan might give, to pull us back to our previous religious stance. And may we rest in all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.